Hello and welcome to Grey Eye and Disability Arts Online's podcast, Disability And, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Alexandrina Hemsley chats with Deborah Williams about disability and race. Welcome to Disability and Podcast. I'm Alexandrina Hemsley and I'm joined by Deborah Williams. This morning we are in the Grey Eye Studios and I am wearing an orange jumper and a white dress with some copper tights and my hair's at quite an afro and I've been lying down so it's a bit square at the back and I have light brown skin I don't even know how to follow that. Um, I'm Deborah Williams. Today I'm wearing a black uh, Data as Culture t-shirt and a pair of green, almost McEwen tartan. I've got a very short afro because my hair's falling out. It's grey at the front. Um, Very dark light brown, if that makes sense. So I'm black but not really black. And uh, no left hand. Um, so, Deborah and I are here today, we were asked by Colin to discuss the historical exclusion of black disabled people from the arts, um, and we were both excited by the proposal, but we'd also like to come at it, or come at this conversation, from the position that exclusion has already, well, it has happened, and that it isn't solely our responsibility to scrutinise why this has happened. We feel that doing so in some ways is an act to unearth the mechanisms that whiteness uses to erase and exclude. And more and more it feels as if, well, I feel anyway, that it's for white people to begin to understand whiteness or do more to understand whiteness. So where we're coming from is we're going to discuss together today how we as artists have travelled through this erasure, how it has impacted our practice, how we've survived it, how we continue to make our practices and the practices of others visible through this backdrop, and knowing that this historical and present erasures are the backdrop for the practices of many, many black disabled artists. I think it's important for me, especially in, in the work that I'm doing at the moment, the, the day job I'm doing at the moment, that um, you spend a lot of time justifying yourself in spaces. And as a black disabled woman, I, I'm tired of doing that. Mm-hmm. So to be present is my gift to the world, really. That's mm. the way I see it. I don't have to... Um, I'm, I've stopped justifying in your no. day job, Deborah? My day job at the moment is the chief executive of the Creative Diversity Network. So I work with UK broadcasters to help them look at diversity across the entire supply chain. So production, commissioning, employment, recruitment, contracting, um, everything, really. Where? <laughs> I've got down here. Where have we been? 
so far. Ironically, I think we've been everywhere, but we've been hidden. And we've mostly been invisible. Or silenced. You know, my the experiences I've had whether in the work I'm doing now or in the work I was doing 25 years ago when I started with Grey Eye. I was visible, but invisible. And I think a lot of black disabled um, artists feel that way globally. So the, the, the reason I realised it was when I sort of started my own production company in the late 90s, early noughties, I built a website and I was getting emails from people around the world, from Canada and the US in particular, from black disabled artists who were saying, thank you, thank you for putting your work online because I can see it and I know that there's somebody else out there like me. And mostly individuals, so not had the chance to either build companies, build organisations, build you know, creative teams around us, but mostly individuals who have just sort of been left to their own devices and fighting um, through all sorts of um, barriers and prejudices and assumptions. It was nice because I wasn't the only one. That's when I sort of found out I wasn't the only one. But it was shocking that it was, it was everywhere and everybody had experienced it. Mm. And I think the more I talk about what I do and my experiences, the more people come up to me and go, yeah, yeah, you know, I know what that feels Thank you for saying that. I know what that feels like. That's my experience. Very rarely do people come up to me and go, yeah, no, that's not been my experience. I've been, I've been welcomed with open arms and just, you know, encouraged to come in and be creative and built a nice company. And, you know, we're talking within the, the culture of where we are. You know, I'm an MPO and mm. I'm supported. You know, there's one person, that's Maria, Maria Shoddy, and she's the only person that gets, that has been able to continue to fight and push her way through the, the, the barriers and everything to come out on the other side and say, this is what I do, this is who I am, and I'm an artist and I do this. Because we're in different generations and there's something I really resonate there when you were saying around this double experience of being seen and unseen and also then the power you're speaking of, of being seen and when you're seen by others or you have your experience seen by others and I think it's almost like a floodgate somehow like and I I never know how to really navigate that that these things are suddenly quite hyper visible but that we still it, it feels still such a kind of embodied almost like needy experience to be truly seen and um, actually there was quite, in terms of generations, there was quite a bit of tension actually between different generations of black women um, in a way that I now have quite a deep compassion for because the fight is hard and it is continual and it is so old, you know? I mean, I think it was for about 15 years um, I lived as somebody else. I tried to be the person that everybody else wanted me to be. So I tried to be non-disabled. I tried to be a girl. I tried to be white. I tried to be invisible. I was silenced and I'd silenced myself. I was complicit in my own mm-hmm. um, silence and erasure. And it, I went to America in 2000 to study what I thought was just contact improvisation. And it turned out to be something completely different. It, it, it opened my eyes 
and my soul, my creative soul, in a way that I just never anticipated, because it was isolating parts of, you know, one of the exercises, the core exercise of the organisation was to isolate parts of your body and to um, present them, present a monologue. And when I had to do it with just voice, I couldn't do it. I had no voice. And the director I was working with said to me, I give you permission. And he, he, you know, he was an older white man, obviously. And he wasn't being facetious, but he was, he was like, you, you no longer, after this day, you no longer have to be silent. You, you have the right to be who you are and to use your voice the way you want to use it. And that's when I really came into my own, personally, within myself, mm-hmm. as a performer and as an actor. And I love theatre. It cuts through everything I do. Since I was seven, I was acting. And to to only ever have barriers, uh, you know, was incredibly difficult and hard to sort of understand what I was doing wrong. And there are still moments where I think, what am I doing wrong? When people when people push back or push against me or shut me out, you know, the moment the work I'm doing, you know, we presented a report last week on diversity demographics within UK broadcasting and the people that were the that were shouting us down the most were black men they are confident in their arrogance they are incorrect in the in, in what in the they are in, incorrect and spreading untruths about the work that we do they don't talk to us but they feel that because they are black men and they have the status that they have which is acceptance from white people and so just for clarity so these are black men in different cultural institutions uh, some in different cultural institutions but mostly working across UK broadcasting right I see yeah Um, Mm -hmm. they um, because they have acceptance from white people they they can say whatever they want Mm -hmm. because they don't have to have the truth they can just tell the lies and it's very difficult to go back to what you talked about in the beginning Mm -hmm. to not be fighting that erasure but the coping mechanisms they're good, you know. They're good and bad, I guess. I've sort of over over time, I've found lots of different coping mechanisms. Some of them completely self-destructive, of course, because that's where you go first, because that's what we're taught that you're the problem. Mm-hmm. So you try to solve you, and when you can't solve you as the problem, you start to um, try to erase you as the problem, and mm-hmm. you, as, you know, that were those bad habits come into being. And then I did a lot of. I do meditation now. Uh, I did a lot of coaching. I coach now as well. I'm a coach, so I self-coach sometimes, which is is dangerous. But on a day-to-day level, to be able to get be able to get up and say, "Okay, I'm here today. I'm present today." But you're, I like what you said. This thing around always calling out erasure is also exhausting. Yeah. Processes of self-care become even more um, important for people of colour disabled people of colour. These internal erasures and this, what you're speaking of that um, when you're doing the concept improvisation workshop made me think around the importance of voice, finding a voice. I wonder about strategies for finding a voice. I wonder if we could speak a bit about, I don't know if the right word is alter ego, but these kind of like performative strategies Mm. and strategies in performance. Mm. 
that we each use in our work. I'm thinking about Sister D, or I'm thinking about, for me, I use like sort of Afrofuturist projections almost like <laughs> into other space making other spaces yeah. where we can be more fully it, ourselves it's it's a funny thing you bring up sister d because sister d started as a show that i did in edinburgh and it was actually called originally called the good little nigger right, right. double yeah. and and i'd got and i was a, and i was a full-on um uh black face white mm. glove you know clout buffoon mm. on the poster and it was a fully improvised show and I did it because, you know, <clears throat> all those years ago, you know, you know, we were talking about television and news and what you were seeing and how people were represented on television. And I just didn't see myself. So I created an alter ego, mm. which was a, a TV evangelist. So this TV evangelist got a space on TV, but because she was atypical... So she wasn't necessarily um, saying what, you know, all the other evangelists were saying, but what she was saying was sort of shoot... A lot of stuff she was saying was shooting herself in the foot. Mm. But it gave me an opportunity to talk about things that, as a black disabled woman, I'd never been allowed to talk about. So to talk about sex, to talk about um, intimacy, to talk about um, hate, to talk about self-loathing, to talk Mm. about all those sorts of things. Mm. And as she developed... Um, into the Sister D show, which is what the full show then eventually became. Uh, it was very much about a TV evangelist who was born disabled, but because she was so ashamed of that, she told she made, created a lie and told a story of how she was how she saved a child and became disabled. Hmm. So she found a way to justify her impairments. A uh, kind of rescue or like a heroic yeah, art, absolutely. a traditionally heroic. Absolutely white western mythological arc absolutely because that was the only way because of the self-hate was so inherent in her um and in many ways it was my way of saying this is what you do to people to the world especially the theatre world this Mm. is what you do to people because at the time theatre you know go back you know i mean even now when you're reading about it there are still no black disabled people really working in theatre in mainstream theatre, in the institutions, there are no opportunities to run venues or uh, be executive directors or be artistic directors or be associates. You know, you've got you, you've got Amit, um, who sort of sits within Grey Eye and West Yorkshire and etc. But there are no women. There are no women, and that seems to be acceptable to people. People go, oh yes, that, you know, people don't even think about that and look at that. So if I want to spend some time now writing something I feel like writing or supporting myself through Arts Council investment or whatever, then who are you to tell me I can't? What makes you think that you have the right to tell me that I can't? Mm -hmm. You do not know who I am. And I guess that's part of the downside of having an alter ego. Mm -hmm. Having an alter ego that is uh, vocal and will say the things that other people won't say will walk into a room knowing that there is an expectation and living that expectation of saying stuff that nobody wants to hear, that everyone is embarrassed by. Um, Mm -hmm. The downside of that is that people think that that's all you are, that you become become your own stereotype. Yeah, these stereotypes are really interesting. 
there's the quote, isn't there, by um, Jimmy Amanda Ngozi, that stereotypes are true, but they're incomplete. There's yeah. something about them. Yeah. Absolutely. Because um, when you were speaking about the title of the show, I was thinking about my own video work and how I think in 2015 I made a video work called One Nubian for the Boys. <laughs> and I was in a leotard and I painted a really, like, a really pseudo, like, African with a capital A, like, vague <laughs> kind of mask on my face. And I was just, my, again, this invisible, invisible disability things, um, I, my quiet task for myself when I was filming was to just look at this camera that I found very invasive and very phallic and male, look at the camera for more than a minute, like not duck away from mm. the gaze, whatever this loaded white male gaze was, just look, like stare it down. Yeah. And, all, and what I think then surfaced or got expressed was a lot of rage and anger. And there was mm. a kind of like purposely heavy metal, like blokey track, track. bit of play. Yeah. And there was a lot of, um, and I was kind of only in a leotard and I filmed it in a tiny flat that I was staying in. Um, and I showed it, We I was part of this um, professional development training programme for choreographers and I showed it, we all had to go around and show our work and I showed it and everyone else got a lot of like very detailed feedback. I think I realise now because there were a lot of shared reference points for a lot of the other work and for my work <laughs> there were no reference points. All the tutor could say, he put his hand up and said, it's interesting that young people now make work that is so disturbing. Wow. And I... From that moment on, I felt, wow, I'm just outside of the circle. Whatever yeah. is going on in this group, I am outside. What, rather than own their position as a white man and say, I found whatever the content of that work, I was disturbed yes. by it. Something in that rattled me. They were able to use that position of power as the tutor yeah. and label my work and therefore me and my body disturbing, which is so different. It's such a different thing. And I think you're right, I think that came from naming and trying somehow to harness a stereotype of angry black and then in brackets and the kind of invisible brackets disabled woman. I say I'm lucky about being a disabled woman because my phys you know, physically I look disabled. I, you know, I look like I'm supposed to be. I'm not all human. <laughs> so people can instinctively, mm. um, when they bother to look, because otherwise, first of all, I get sir all the time, so I'm always a man. Yeah, that's misgendered. Thing. Which is just, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting now in the, in the trans conversation, the transgender conversation, people constantly tell me that I don't know what it's like to be misgendered. I'm like, you have no idea. And that goes back to childhood, right? That's a part of one of my non-visible conditions that nobody um, bothers to think about. I now walk with, like, I've got a broken body, um, which I never used to do, but I take pride in that because it's my body. And it took me forever to wear T-shirts, to not wear long sleeve jumpers, to not constantly cover myself up, to not try and make myself small and fit into that invisible space. Because exactly, exactly what you said, that people found it threatening. And instead of people finding that threatening within themselves... The assumption was I, you know, I, and I still use the term, although I stopped using it about a year ago because my seven-year-old nephew 
reframed it for me in a different way. I used to, I scare people. I use that a lot. But my nephew said to me last year, um, and he just said to me, he said, you impress people. Yeah, and he was, actually he was six, he wasn't even seven, because he was seven until the summer. And I went, what? And he went, no, no, you impress people. And that, that was when I sort of, that stayed with me. And that's the term I now use. My fear is that, it, you know, my ego then, it turns into, I turn into an egotistical maniac. <laughs> you know, I hope I won't, but, you know, I, it's a fear of mine. But actually that made more sense to me than you scare people. People are scared of me because of what they see in me. But ultimately, that's not down to me. That's not my fault, which comes right back again to the beginning. I'm not going to apologise. We need to stop apologising and stop trying to explain Mm -hmm. racism, xenophobia, disabilism, sexism, misogyny, all of those things, Mm -hmm. because they're not ours. Mm. Well, they're not mine. Anyway, do you know what I mean? They're not mine, and they're not mine as a performer, Mm. and they're not mine as an artist, as a writer, as a director... They're not, they're just, it's just not mine. I wonder if something, this sort of like nuanced wisdom of your nephew is something that I see a lot around me in the practices of black disabled artists. This like innate understanding that there's like multiple ways of being, because there has to be. Mm-hmm. We're like, there just has to be. We're constantly navigating so, men, so yeah. much, we're yeah. holding so much. Um, we're expressing so much we're constantly in negotiation with um, so many intersections of identities and histories um, visible or invisible I think this is like where where we are if we have anything in common it does feel to be this kind of capacity for movement yeah you know internal or external um, and a way I think of also calling out what does appear to be invisible to others because I think of an experience, like embodied experience, like you're saying, even around being misgendered, it's like embodied experience of uh, violences. Yeah, it's uh, you know the the training term now, you know, is, is microaggressions. You know, so people get people now get make money off off microaggression training. I'm like, you've got no idea. It is it's absolutely it's violence and. It, it's constant, it's never-ending. And even with people that you know, so people that I know who work with me or want to work with me or like my work or whatever, something will happen and I will respond to it. And the other person, which is usually a, a, a white, straight white man, gets very angry and very irate with me because I haven't responded the way that they want me to respond, which is usually they want me to be violent and angry because the myth of the, the angry black woman just will justify their behaviour. Uh, it happened to me on a plane a couple of weeks ago. Um, some man was putting his bag into the, the overhead and the, the ta- you know, all the tassels were all smacking me in the face. And I just put my hand up to just move it out of the way. And you know, I was sitting next to somebody who, who I'm travelling with and mm. you know, he's white and straight and the man was white and straight. And the guy was sh- shouting at me, all right, all right. All right, and I, I just literally, all, I hadn't even said anything. I just put my hand up to make sure the tassels didn't smack me in the face. And then afterwards, when I talked to my friend, he went, oh, yes, but he, what I saw in him was fear. And I said, fear of what? Mm. Fear of what? And he, tried, he spent a lot of time trying to justify that man's behaviour towards me. And I said, look, he saw a black man and thought it was going to kick off. 
And my friends went, no, I don't think he did. I went, no, that, he did. Trust me. I've lived this life a hundred times over. That's what he saw. And because I was quiet, he didn't know how to respond to it. So his response, which was, was you know, was his natural response to go to, which was, come on then, have a go. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't care, mate. I'm sitting down in my seat. Mm-hmm. You smacked me in the face with the bag. Mm-hmm. You didn't even say sorry. But it's my problem. It comes back to seen and not seen. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't see you because his belongings were, you know, hitting air. Yeah. And then he saw and, and yeah, responded aggressively. I'm I mean, sorry that happened. That's all right. It's not your fault. It wasn't you, was it? No. <laughs> no, I'm, but don't, I, I appreciate the, the, the apology, mm. but don't. Mm. Because it's not for you to apologise. Mm. You know, mm. that instance, it's not for you to apologise, it's for them to apologise. Mm. And it's for them to own, not even apologise, own it. Own and I don't want an apology, I want you to own your behaviour. I mean, we want, we want, uh, it's this thing, isn't it? We want, we want the system to see. Yes. The way, we want the way that, the, that systematic oppression is unfolding to begin to be seen by those who are benefiting from the way that this is unfolding. Exactly. And that will include brown people, black people, white people, disabled people, non-disabled, feminists, etc. You know, especially across the establishment of the arts. Mm. And for me, theatre, for you, dance. Mm. But especially across the establishment of theatre. I mean, mm. the nonsense that, that came out the other day about, um, you know, so many arts organisations being met or strong under the Creative Case of Diversity at the Arts Council. It made my stomach churn. Mm. Because it's lies. And the fact that there are so many people inside these institutions who are benefiting and who from work by artists like yourself at the moment who are working independently, constantly trying to, you know, live hand to mouth mm. and they're being told that they, they are, that they're, um, because they've employed somebody once, probably underpaid that person on, on a, a contract, contract, on a very short term contract, they are somehow meeting the, 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 the requirements of the only funder in the country, where, where as an individual artist you can get money. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense to me. And it makes me so angry. And people won't own that, won't accept that, won't acknowledge that, won't talk about it. And, you know, I'm trying, I've started writing again and I've started thinking about, you know, where I want to put my shows and, you know, because I... I'm a traditional text-based, almost classic theatre uh, aficionado. That's what I love. I love words. Mm. They excite me. They they generate things in me. Uh, my words, sometimes, when they're read back to me, but when I read plays, you know, when I was working in the Midlands doing piecework, you know, putting together clocks or whatever, I was reading Bernard Shaw and I was reading O'Neill and I was reading all these books and these plays and people would look at me very strangely. I'm like, I don't care. I'm, this, is, this, this was my fuel. And I fueled myself for so long with that. And then now I feel like all of the spaces that I wanted to work, all of the spaces that I loved, all of the spaces where I just naturally assumed I would be able to perform and present my work. None of them. None of them are open to me. I think this is so real, isn't it? That, and actually, I don't think this has been said enough. That I, 
Maybe. Every black disabled artist goes through this process of disillusionment. Yeah. So as part of this healing, recovery, whatever, we also have to like heal from this disillusionment. And it's hard. For 10 years, I didn't write anything. Hmm. You know, I just had writer's block. And I, ref- and I couldn't write, which was the, my voice going again. Having spent, you know, having spent 12 years creating my voice, hmm. um, all of a sudden it disappeared again. Because, in particular, disability shut me out. You know, the Olympics came and all the people that, you know... the. Every, all the people that hated sport and thought the Olympics were horrible and didn't like Super Crips and all the rest of it, suddenly they were the ones who got all the money. Ironically. <laughs> ironically, they were the ones who got all the money. And, it, and I think that disillusionment is the biggest one, is the hypocrisy that I then had to live through and watch all this stuff happen. And some of it, most of it, not very good, you know, in terms of arse, but there's no critique. So we're still in that space of, you know, let, let the little, um, the poor little disabled do their thing and let's not critique it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and now, when I want to create work, when I think about, you know, I, I wrote a play, the play I wrote when I was in the Tallow Writers Group was a, was a play for the Olympics, mm-hmm. was, a, was a play about two girls... Um, Growing up, one disabled, one non-disabled, sort of tomboy, you know, uh, and how that relationship grew over sports. Um, and I wrote it for the Olympics, and it was presented at the Young Vic as a, as a read-through, but no one picked it up. Nobody picked it up. And that told me everything I needed to know. So as a, as a writer, as an artist, I'm completely lost and bereft. I have nowhere to go. So unless I go back to creating my own work, which of course people belittle, because you're not commissioned by, why aren't you commissioned by the Royal Court? Or why aren't you commissioned by X, Y or Z or the National Theatre and da 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 da? You know, well, I'm not commissioned by them because they don't see me. Um, and when they do see me, they, I'm seen and used and then passed over, but make their numbers look good. So when you then come a year down the line and say, what have you done this year? They go, oh, look, we did this, this and this. Oh, you're great because you've met our criteria. But the artists that you've used, I'm sorry, who are they? You know, you don't even have to name them or present them in any way. And it's, and that's where I am at the moment is the struggle of I'm writing. I want to make theatre. I don't feel there's anywhere for me to wait for theatre in this country. Um, I don't. I don't want to go abroad and become one of those. You know, um, you know. Oh, I had to leave. I had to leave England to become famous. People. I'm like. Don't, I just want to make theatre. Do you know? I want to write plays. I want to perform them. I want to direct. I want to work with collaborators who are interested in the stories I'm writing, which are warped and odd and very dark. Very, very dark humour. You know, they sit in the Mel Brooks space of humour and the Tarantino space of. Uh, of of violence, but that's the work I like. That's the work I write, uh, and it tells stories that you know. I I'm not hearing a story of a, a of a black disabled woman anywhere. I'm not. That story's not being told. That's not being shared. The, those narratives aren't in public space and public domain. 
or when they are like I'm thinking about Selena Thompson's salt I think they are they're extraordinary and then they are still very few and far between mm. what is a the relationship to writing that you value like the relationship to, to writing that you value for yourself peace the peace peace and joy the peace and joy I get when I write or at the moment there's a poem floating around in my head um which is about um, a, a love affair that was never to be um, for me. And, and I'm just liking that. It's a very painful experience that I'm, that I'm reliving constantly. But I'm liking the fact that when I go to bed at night and try to sleep and don't sleep, that these words are running around in my head, that I find peace. Because ultimately I'm an artist. You know, the matter which way you cut me like a stick of rock, I've got artist, 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 written all the way through me. And that's been lacking for the last, in particular, four or five years, where I've just hunkered down into a sort of day job. But the peace and joy that come from that, the peace of knowing that it's still there, and the joy of knowing that it's, that, that possibly it will, it will, really, it will resurface. I think that's really lovely to hear. I like what you said about peace. It's just a sort of... Because it's kind of... Writing is solitary, isn't it? But you're right, you're right. it's also quiet. I hadn't really remembered that when I write, it's also quiet. Even if there's, like, so much going exactly. on outside. Even exactly. if there's just, like, someone else is in the other room and I, I have two cats and they're, like, ah, fighting, doing whatever they do, you know, sorting out their own little disputes in cat land or whatever... <laughs> Um, you know, yeah, when I'm writing, it's like there is a level of uh, focus. And I guess a way, like you were saying, of visiting all these lives that we've lived. Um, I'm currently writing a series of um, like retrieval poems. I'm trying to revisit moments where, yeah, my body has frozen or been blocked. Because I think when you were speaking about not having written for 10 years, I definitely experienced in the last four to five years a real diminishment of voice. It's what, um, thankfully, when I did the guest editorship with Disability Arts Online in July 2019, I was somehow, like, riding the cusp out of or, like, really trying to and wanting to kind of resurface from this real, like, inertia over words and language, just feeling like I... um, was it not that I didn't have anything to say but that there was almost like too much to say that it was all getting caught in my like really caught in my throat and it was just in an overwhelming way um so I'm trying to revisit these sites and rescue myself I think again these uh narratives that feel really important as a black disabled person that um a different way of maybe understanding endings or understanding violences mm, mm. that the that our subjectivities and our subjecthood and our survivals aren't um, the ends of us. No, absolutely. I'm, that we're still present. Yeah, absolutely. That the, mm. the what you said about being stuck, mm. the words being stuck, because for me it, it's fear. I mean, I don't know what it is with you, but. That, that what you say has never been said or if it has been said it's not been acknowledged and when and when it's you saying it this comes back to the activist you know the 
my the very fact I am alive isn't it's a political act. The fact I exist, um, the fact I do the work I do are all political acts. And when everything about you is a political act, you are open to so much abuse and so much um, damage and danger. And your control, the control over your larynx, the control over your words, how those words come out of your mouth, how they are used, how they are landed, how they are used against you, for you. Which is quite challenging at the moment because I'm, you know, I'm re, I'm reliving my childhood because my mum's passed, and I'm trying to think of all and remember the good things, the best of my childhood. And uh, it's in, it's difficult, but I'm trying to really work hard to do it. And there are some in, moments in there that I remember I'm like, oh my god, um, those are brilliant moments. And then I look into the the you know the world I work and. Uh, and what I want to do, and those moments aren't there. You know, the moments of a of a five year old or a six year old, or uh, the young disabled person's not there, not visible in theatre, not visible in television, not visible in film. The young black disabled child who's an overachiever. You know, we're never overachievers. We're always strapped to chairs in corners and bashing our heads against walls. That the the normalcy of disability doesn't exist, and that narrative is a narrative that you know. This is the first time I've said it, you know, because I don't feel able to say it. Really, mm. it's definitely something that needs work, but I don't know if I'm the person to do it. I really don't. When thinking about the original proposal to mm. think through. Uh, historical exclusion we had spoken previously a little bit about like archiving um and i guess the importance of acknowledging the scene also like what we were talking around critical discourse or just like networks um the fact that people are present it somehow just feels nice to name a few Mm. people yeah so um yeah these are definitely people who've added value to my life and are really present in their articulations around their lived experience making their stories really visible and have somehow, I believe, are really marking their histories. So, uh, Tony Lewis, Demi Nandra, Priya Mystery, Selena Thompson, Jade Montserrat, Shireen Hamilton, Matilda Abini, Marion Burge, Tony D. Poole, Rhea Hartley, Brownton Abbey, and Chanjay Kunda. I know nearly none of those people, so that's interesting. It's mm. a bit of history for me to go and do. Mm. I mean, I've named one person, which is Maria Rashodi, and I named her, and I will always name her, because she kept on fighting. And she sits um, head and shoulders above anyone else in terms of her creativity, but also her ability to to fold her impairment and into her art and to really make that central. When I, in 2000, when the, the transatlantic slave trade and all, again, all the money was there, etc., I was, Ruth Gould was at um, Dada Fest and she commissioned me to write a show about Harriet Tubman, who is, of course, you know, I'd been told the year before there were no disabled slaves. Um, and, of course, Harriet was a disabled slave. And, um, and Harriet is the classic example of she was placed in children's education there was a little song about Harriet Tubman, how she feed the slaves. 
but there was no story about how she was a businesswoman, how she, how she, the work she did at the Underground Railroad, what that meant, and all the deeper contextualisation of the work she did. So it will always be Harriet. Um, Leroy Moore, who um, works in the States, um, and Keith Jones, they work together. They sort of work on the Crip-Hop Nation work. Uh, Manfred Sanchez, who's based in Germany. Um, and Bosco. And I'll talk about Bosco. Bosco's in Rwanda. He was one of the children I worked yeah. with when I went out to Rwanda two or three years ago um, and did a piece of work around the genocide with a group of black, young, disabled Rwandans who all of them born post-genocide. But they wanted to do some work around the impact it's had on them and being in Kigali. And Bosco has now got he's got a he's a, he's a young blind musician. He's now twenty. I think he was eighteen when I worked with him, so he's just coming up to twenty. And last weekend he performed his first gig, professional gig at Kigali Jazz Junk, um, Festival, and he got he's got an EP out. And I just think it gives me hope that there are young people globally, because the other thing is the global diaspora includes disabled people and should include disabled people. Yeah. So that's, those, are the, those are the people that I, I name and, mm. as, as artists who make work and who are doing now um, what I hope is what's best for them, not what other people think they should be doing and not through anyone else's gaze but their own. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for this conversation. And you, very Thank nice you. to meet you. Yeah. To talk. Yes. It was very nice to talk. Thank you to Disability Arts Online. Thank you to Disability Arts Online, in conjunction with Richard Butchins, are launching a new podcast, 213 Things About Me. The podcast will be available from the 28th of May through all good podcast providers. 213 Things About Me I'm going to recount a story. It's a true story. I mean, as true as any story can be. Aren't all stories true in some way or another? From Anna Karenina to The Handmaiden's Tale? They're all about truth in one form or another. This one is about a friend of mine. About her life and her death. About how she died and why. But more importantly, it's about how she lived. 2. I jump up and down and clap when I'm happy. 12. I can easily forget to eat, sometimes for days in a row. When thinking about what it might mean to walk in someone else's shoes, imagine myself in someone else's shoes. Which means that I'm still me with all my history, all my thought processes, but now I'm wearing a pair of very uncomfortable shoes. I mean, they closed all the bookshops, but left open all the booze shops, because they're essential, and books are just trouble. At least, until you need to find one to figure out how to make more beer. 61. I don't know who I am. Until recently, I thought this was a phenomenon of the human experience. There's a myth that autists can't empathise, but of course they can. The problem is figuring out what someone else is feeling from non-verbal cues, body language, facial expressions and so on. Problems working out what someone else is feeling isn't the same as 
not feeling empathy for them. Not at all. 62. I cannot, under any circumstances, do two things at once. 213 Things About Me. A podcast about thinking, living and dying. From an autistic point of view. Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews and learning opportunities.